is not just a study of books and text. No, history is learned through artifacts that have come down to us through the centuries, the stuff of past ages. For me, one of the most illuminating ways to learn about history is to visit historic sites and to see what remains of what someone from the past might have seen and experienced, to look through their eyes and put ourselves in their shoes as best we can. For this episode of the Harrison Podcast, I'd like to share with you an experience that I recently had at a historic site. Thank you for joining me, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Now, as you might be able to surmise from the title and description of this episode, we're not getting back to a Harrison-centric episode just yet. I had an episode planned and was working on it, but discovered that, in order to do it justice, I really needed to do more research and take some more time with it. Thus, I decided to turn something that I had originally intended to be just a blog post and make it into an episode. That being said, there are pictures that accompany all of this, so I recommend that you head over to the website, whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, to check those out. A link to the pictures will also be available on the social media for the podcast. My handle on both Facebook and Twitter is Harrison Podcast, all one word. With that said, let's hit the road. You know how there are those attractions that are near enough to your home that you could make a day trip to them or that you pass by on a regular basis, but yet you just never seem to make that turn to pull in? That is the John C. Calhoun house for me. We moved to Charlotte, North Carolina in 2006, and in that 11 years, we have probably passed by the sign for exit 19B for the John C. Calhoun house at least 30 times, if not more, on the way between Atlanta and Charlotte. To be fair, we tried to go once. We had some time on our hands on one trip and decided to go ahead and go. The first thing you must know is that the Calhoun House is in the middle of the campus of Clemson University. More on that in a minute. The second thing you must know is that Clemson, like many large southern universities, is a big college football town. The third thing you must know is that while my husband and I do get into college football games when we watch them, we don't keep up with the schedules. Thus, we ended up that day desperately trying to navigate through the traffic of a Clemson home game day rather than going to the Calhoun house. Honestly, I'm rather glad that it didn't work out as I now know much more about Calhoun and antebellum U.S. history in general for the experience to be more meaningful. Thus, on the morning of Friday, October 20th, 2017, Alex and I left our home in Davidson, bound for Clemson. Bless him, over the years, I've dragged Alex to historic sites in all corners of the U.S., some well-known, others quite unknown. The Caleb Cushing House in Newburyport, Massachusetts certainly fell into the latter category, though it is highly recommended for anyone in the area. Thus, he gave no objection when I suggested that we go to Fort Hill, the official name of the Calhoun House, on the way to Atlanta. Check-in wasn't in chill three, and we needed to stop off somewhere to eat anyway. When I asked him if he knew who John C. Calhoun was, he admitted that he didn't, so I gave him a brief bio and showed him a picture. You've probably seen the picture. Black and white, Calhoun has the wild crazy hair and the circles around his eyes. If you don't know the picture, it's included on the post with the pictures from the visit. Alex is not one to mince words, so his first impression is what came out of his mouth. And I quote, He looks like Beethoven's crazy cousin, and Beethoven was crazy enough. And yes, I told him I was including this line in this episode and that it ultimately became part of the title. One thing I will note for anyone interested in going to Fort Hill, 
parking is not always the easiest to find. There are some spots in front of the site which are angled for traffic coming from the stadium. I'll include a link to the campus map along with the pictures on the website for anyone who may want to visit, by the way. We managed to find a visitor's parking spot that didn't require a special visitor's pass, which we were told was rare. Just be sure to do a little research, plan accordingly with a couple of backups, and read the signage to make sure you're parking in a good spot. Because of where we parked, we were able to get a sense for the higher elevation of Fort Hill. I don't know how much it's changed since Calhoun's day, but it was certainly a hill and would have been a good fortified position for a house on what was then the frontier. The original part of the home was built around 1803 by Reverend James McElhaney and consisted of four rooms. It wasn't until 1825 that Calhoun, by that point Vice President of the United States, bought the house, along with the 1,100 acres associated with the plantation, and had it enlarged to 14 rooms. We learned from staff at the site that the Calhouns did not use an architect for the enlargement, and thus the movement between different sections of the house is not always as smooth as it could have been. Going from the older part of the house into the extension, there is a pretty substantial drop-off. So tip for those who go to visit, watch your step. One other tip before we move on. When you're visiting a historic site, please feel free to ask questions. Pretty much at every historic site I've ever been to, and again, as Alex can attest, that list is rather lengthy. The interpreters, guides, and other staff members are friendly, often are a wealth of information that you wouldn't have learned just from reading the signs, and are glad when people show a genuine interest in history. They're there to help the public learn. That's why they do what they do, especially those who are unpaid volunteers, though I can say with a good amount of confidence that even the paid staff members are not in it for the money, because there's typically not big money in the profession of public history. Thus, show your appreciation by showing an interest and saying thank you. A little kindness can go a long way. Okay, getting off my soapbox now and getting back to Fort Hill. Because the house and the majority of its contents stayed within the family after Calhoun's death until they ultimately ended up with Calhoun's daughter, Anna Maria, and her husband, Thomas Clemson, and yes, he was directly responsible for starting the university, nearly 90% of the furnishings and artifacts in the house are original to the house and the family, which those of you who have visited other historic sites will know is rare. The rooms downstairs are more well-documented with photographic evidence, as they were the rooms used for entertaining, as well as the Calhoun's bedroom. So the historic interpreters are able to stage those rooms and speak with more certainty as to how they were used than they were able to do with some of the upstairs rooms. More on that in a minute. In addition to the master bedroom, the downstairs has the parlor and the state dining room. In the dining room, there's a sideboard made of mahogany wood reclaimed from the original USS Constitution that was a gift to Calhoun from none other than Henry Clay, of whom we have spoken so much the last few months. You're not getting away from Clay that easily. One of the best features of the historical interpretation at Fort Mill, in my humble opinion, is that, interwoven with the stories of the Calhouns and later the Clemsons, there are panels and artifacts about the lives of the enslaved people who inhabited the site as well. Growing up in the South, I have been to plantations that have tried to invoke the Gone with the Wind mystique, focused solely on the white inhabitants of the site. But Fort Hill works towards more authenticity in its interpretation and reminds visitors that enslaved people of color would have been a constant presence in the everyday lives of all that lived on the site. Also, they remind visitors that those enslaved on the site were not necessarily content or resigned to this situation. Moving into the second floor of the building, 
visitors come upon a series of bedrooms. The historical interpreters have attempted to assign rooms to the various members of the Calhoun family in order to speak to their lives, but there is some uncertainty as to who slept in what room. The interpretation of the stories of the enslaved people on the site continues upstairs as well, with one display detailing how one young woman named Izzy, whether deliberately or not, placed hot coals under a pillow in one of the upstairs bedrooms, which caught fire and could have burned the house down. Though we cannot say conclusively in the present day whether that was her intent, as the only record we have is from Calhoun family letters rather than her own account, the inhabitants of the house apparently felt that it was set intentionally, and thus sent her down to the plantation in Alabama owned by Calhoun's eldest son, Andrew, where, from similar accounts, we can expect that she was treated more harshly and there was less of a possibility of her escaping. Izzy was ultimately brought back to Fort Hill at the urging of Calhoun's daughter, Cornelia, but she was likely watched with a close eye after her return. The house originally had a kitchen within the house, but as the threat of fire was great, the kitchen was moved to an adjoining building for safety. The kitchen at the site today is not original, but rather was a recreation as the original had deteriorated to the point where it was removed around the turn of the 20th century. The kitchen, as being a space predominantly occupied by enslaved African Americans, is used as such to tell more of what we know about their everyday lives, as well as to mark the absence of several outbuildings that would have been present on the site, including the slave quarters. Indeed, only two other outbuildings exist the old well, and Calhoun's office. Calhoun's office was completely separate from the house and was where he wrote some of his most famous, or some, including myself, might say infamous, treaties, including his Fort Mill Address of July 1831, in which he outlined his concept of states' rights. Calhoun did apparently try to make good use of the space, as the building not only served as his office, but underneath was the plantation's ice house. Additional storage for items like milk that needed to be kept cool was in the old well. Though positioned, of course, to access clean water for the site, the drudgery of carrying water up to the house over and over again during the course of the day, every day, is apparent to visitors. After leaving, I reflected on the experience and what insight, if any, it provided me about Calhoun. I will admit that I've struggled in my understanding of the great triumvirate as a whole over the years, but none more so than Calhoun. He represents concepts and prejudices that are anathema to principles at the core of who I am. Naturally, the question inevitably becomes, why do we study people like Calhoun in the first place? The most obvious answer is that they were there in the past. They played a role, and we have artifacts from their lives that we can use in the study of history. The more meaningful answer, at least for me, is that we must understand the less than admirable parts of our past and the people who played a role in them in order to understand where we're at and the less than admirable parts of the present. Calhoun had a strong conviction that he was doing what was right. Even at the time, this was questioned by some, but by and large, in the modern day, we would say that morally, he was wrong. Are there some aspects of our present day that future generations may look back on and grimace with disgust? Might there be practices for which we will be condemned in the annals of history? Only time will tell. For now, we study the mistakes and what blinded others in the past to the truth in the hopes that we can not only avoid those pitfalls, but also be open to seeing the realities of our present. 
Thus, I'm glad to have finally taken the time out to visit Fort Hill and will likely head back to the Clemson campus again at some point to get a better feel for the history of the university as well as stop into Fort Hill once more to tour the house again to see anything that is new or that I might have missed. I've learned over time that visiting a historic site once is never enough, no matter how long you have to go through it. Whether it's because of what's on your mind on a particular day or just happenstance, I for one typically end up seeing something on a subsequent visit that I missed the first go-round. Before we could leave campus, though, there was one more item on the agenda. As we've got some friends who are USC, University of South Carolina, not that other one out west, Gamecock fans, we naturally had to take pictures of Death Valley, also known as Memorial Stadium, which is just downhill from Fort Hill. Nothing like taunting friends when you're cavorting with their enemies. Calhoun is certainly one of the candidates that I have in mind for a series of more in-depth episodes, but whether we'll get to him in 2018 is still up in the air. Regardless, I hope you enjoyed taking this little journey with me. I'm planning to follow this up with my thoughts on another historic site Alex and I went to on the same weekend, the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historic Site in Atlanta, Georgia. As Dr. King's life is far beyond the scope of this podcast, I will actually have that available on my other podcast, The Presidencies of the United States, and will share information on all of my podcast social media when that's available. Besides the gratuitous self-promotion of recommending that you check out The Presidencies podcast if you haven't already, available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, or at presidencies.blueberry.com, I also highly encourage you to find a historic site near you and plan a visit sometime in the near future. It helps to get away from the ideas and words that we read about or listen to on podcasts and see what we can see and experience what we can experience for ourselves. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, please feel free to reach out to me via email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook or Twitter at harrisonpodcast, again, all one word. I promise I'm planning something actually focused on Harrison for the next episode. So keep your eyes out for that. Until then, take care, dear friends. Till next time.